people say taking a startup is taking a leap into the void. No, it isn't. You go, <laughs> you get a good coach. It's an airplane. They ask you where you want to fly. They give you some tips. You take off and you, you work out all the risks and you manage the hell out of them. You get a great team and a good advisory board. And yeah, and sometimes you're lucky. Welcome to the Aperture Podcast, where we're in conversation with the people thinking and doing things differently. If you like it, please subscribe and also check out our other content on ApertureHub.co. For episode four, we're in conversation with James Miners. James is an international innovator who's made the journey from science to startup and now supports fellow innovators, helping them to achieve success. If you've wondered what it takes to turn an idea into a successful product or the keys to startup success, this podcast is for you. James has founded and grown several companies, transforming scientific inventions into mass-produced products. For the last five years, he's focused on building the Swiss startup scene and has supported hundreds of innovators and entrepreneurs. He's also used his innovation techniques to support large companies in generating innovative ideas. James works at Fongi, which is Switzerland's premier startup incubator, where he manages the coaching and incubation process. He's also an expert for InnoSuisse, Switzerland's innovation agency. James, welcome to Aperture. Let's start at the beginning, your, your career has gone from science to technology to product to people. Please, can you tell us about it? Yeah, so as a kid, I was always excited about discovering new things and you know, making good new things happen. And so, I, strangely enough, I really wanted to push the boundary of what was known in science. So I ended up doing a PhD with someone who went on to win the Nobel Prize for chemistry. And that was fascinating. The problem that we had um, at the Max Planck Institute was people saying, well, what's the application? It was so far out. And, um, you know, you have a lot of ideas, but then the question is, which of those are useful in the real world? So that pushed me to to industry and to startups and working with uh, taxis that were powered by hydrogen and stuff like that. And... um, in that role, I was ultimately chief scientist, so working on the technology, going from prototype to mass production, multi-generational roadmaps, and then ultimately in the last one, more on the people side and the COO role. So what was the first startup you did after your PhD? So that was in uh, fuel cells for cars and boats, and uh, my job was to set up the research center for new materials and with that we were able to go from an idea all the way to scaling it up and seeing it in a fully integrated system and it was a joy because I was working with people on the Russian space program the European space program and some of the Americans so what happened to that technology So it's funny, technology has um, hype phases. And for a while, the best investment you can make in the world was in hydrogen fuel cells. And then all of a sudden, it's out of fashion. Luckily, batteries became really hip. And 
it's very similar technology. So I was able to move from doing these fuel cells for, uh, for those applications and to small fuel cells for the military yeah. uh, in Israel, and then ultimately to um, nanotechnologies for large batteries that you can see in hybrid and electric vehicles. Okay. And so that was that's so the first startup was where it was in it was in uh, so that was in France okay. and then we ended up having I think nine sites and we were on our way to raising a hundred million pounds had ninety three million signed up and nine eleven happened oh. so you can just imagine bankruptcies just rolling across and there I am in France twenty six years old. Um, First job in industry, first job in France, and with a team of brilliant people that come from all over the world to join me, and we're in bankruptcy. And that was my first big crisis of leadership. You know, everyone can sail a ship when it's you know, happy days, but yeah. I was very proud that I could keep my team together uh, in France and teaming up with the Belgian team. We could actually get refinancing and, and bring that into the second startup. So these, are, I suppose, as long as these things turn out in the end, these are these are good lessons learned, right? Or yeah. Even if they don't, <laughs> yeah. I learned a lot, and the second uh, startup really was great because um, we could take those ideas that we had in the first ones and really uh, ramp them up to mass production, and uh, and that, you know, I learned a lot in that process so, as well. So, so you went from fuel cells to batteries you went from france to israel and, and what came after that so i went to visit my parents one day who live in near lausanne and i'm talking to the neighbor and say hey you do batteries well you should speak to this uh, professor at the epfl so i did and that's how the the fourth startup got got going so what i'm missing one i think so you did you did you did a startup in france a startup in israel yeah two in france oh two in france yeah. okay both in both in fuel cells yeah okay so the first one got bought up by the second and then got it okay okay and so that and so that brought you back to switzerland or, or that yeah. was the first time you moved to switzerland no that brought me back to switzerland because okay. you grew up you grew up here or you grew up in the uk so i was born in france okay. uh, raised in holland educated in the uk and berlin and then yeah two startups in france one in israel the last one back here okay and that that was in that was again in batteries was it? yeah okay and what happened to that company well, we got bought by Dow Chemical, okay, and um, that was at the time where Obama was giving, um, uh, was stimulating the car industry and also the renewables. So um, once I joined Dow, I could help launch their um, energy material business, and yeah, that's that's amazing when you're helping a large company innovate and and bring new technologies to the market as well, and. A couple of questions I wanted to ask you. One was, um, why not do another startup? If if you, because it seems like you had very much had this sort of, you know, the the bug, right, to keep starting new things, and why not do a fifth? Well, if the right opportunity comes along, but at the moment, there's always this question: if, if my why is to help make good new things happen, I can either go deep yep. in one. Or I can work on a lot of different facets of different startups. And because I was really helped by a lot of mentors throughout my um, journey, it's incredibly rewarding to do what I do now. And I think I can actually have 
four times the impact interesting doing that yep. than just do working on one and yeah it also suits my personality as well i think yeah my grandfather always talking about cricket you know i wanted to be a good all-rounder and um you know, on one front, you've got to show to yourself you can do the depth. And I think I did that with my PhD and my postdocs and being a COO. But on the whole, I'm happier in a more creative um, role. Yeah. And, and so so when you did startups, you found it got very operational very quickly and less about about ideation and... Yeah, you've got to you've got to manage that process. I really did go from invention to yeah. uh, to technology to product, and then which I uh, guess makes you a much much better mentor. But what you're saying is, what you like about your existing job is you can you can uh, have a you know an outsized impact by mentoring people, but also you get to concentrate on the sort of early stage of of startups. Is that right? So I, I like the early bit, but yeah. actually, what I enjoy is the the diversity of questions you get asked. So today it was um, the employee share purchase plan for a company. It was managing the coaches at, uh, at Fongit, talking about the dangers of uh, making a video of your product because uh, it can really damage um, your ability to patent them. You imagine that's in my morning today. Yeah. So your brain is being exercised in all of these different dimensions. I think the real questions get more interesting later. And you don't you don't miss some of the rush, the adrenaline of running your own company. Or and and I guess also the a lot of reason why people get into doing startups is because of the outsized potential rewards that can come later. You don't miss that aspect, the adrenaline, the potential to become rich or really rich or what most people don't know about my job is Fongi is a business and it's a fascinating one. We've got 60 startups that we're helping. We've got 350 employees. And over the last five years, we've transformed um, this incubator being world-class in the way it operates and the way we coach in our process for going from idea to a fully funded business plan we're seeing Swiss more Swiss startups going a lot further. So there's this whole business side, and I'm part of a pretty amazing team at Fongit, which uh, has also grown up a lot in the last five years. So, yeah, I get the whole running a business side or working within a business yep. um, at Fongit, and then the ability to affect um, the startups that without the huge portfolio focusing of, um, of running a startup. I think a lot of people idealize how it is to work in a startup. You know, um, I got married at yeah. the age of 45 or 46 for the first time. I think there's a reason why it took so long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're going to come back to that. So there's loads of things that I want to come back to because I, I, I think one of, the, one of the things we should discuss is, is, there some, you know, is, there, is there a false narrative sometimes around what it takes to be successful and run a startup. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to come back to that. I want to talk about Switzerland because okay. I like through Fongit, um, I think we, we can start to see some of the impacts of Fongit and other incubators manifesting themselves in, you know, way better scores for Switzerland, um, way more, um, a way more vibrant ecosystem. So I want to come back to that. I want to talk about Switzerland and Europe. I want to talk about Fongit. But I just want to ask one more question about you before we move on to Fongit, mm. which is, all the companies that you did mm. were focused on energy, batteries, fuel cells. Mm. I, I guess you were motivated by 
stopping climate change or the circular economy or whatever we might call it. Do you not, you know, is that not a burning sort of passion or mission? And do you not miss that aspect of what you were doing? So, yeah, I do think that if you get a gift, you you should use it for for good. And um, I have to say when uh, Copenhagen uh, Summit collapse that was a really big blow to to me personally so now i i genuinely believe that new technology tends to improve the quality of life um, particularly if it's in in life science but in a um, replacement economy better products tend to also be cleaner yep and so i find what i'm doing now is contributing and as if we now look at the movement from clean tech to sdgs there are a lot more different ways that you can contribute what are sdgs sustainable development goals okay thank you all 17 of them and so what i think so what you're saying is you you are you are very motivated by helping the planet but what you're saying is you're you're still having a contribution it's just a bit more indirect than it was developing technologies for industry is probably a space that is best played by industry itself clean tech is not an obvious place for um for startups if you've got to prove that you've got a lifetime of uh, 15 years um and then you've got to finance all of that yeah that's a tough path to market as well um we're gonna move on now so tell yeah. us tell us uh, tell us how you started working at Fongit and uh, what Fongit is? Okay, so Fongit is the Geneva Foundation for Technology Innovation. And the story of startups in Switzerland really started 50 years ago with a tech um, innovator who tried to set up his company and it failed. And then two years later, tried again with his brother and it failed. And the third time, it was a charm, it became Lem. Um, which is now quoted on the stock exchange. It's in multiple companies, a real Swiss success story. Mr. Etter, when, when um, the company IPO'd, he decided he wanted to take some of that money and use it to help other tech innovators so that they could avoid some of the silly mistakes that he made at the beginning yeah. and they could boost their su- uh, success. So Fongit was set up by innovators for innovators and that was 28 years ago and that's what we're doing today it's trying to find the best way to transform ideas and research into products and services that deliver social and economic value and how long has it been going 28 and a half years wow okay yeah so it was the first one in switzerland and the guy was really visionary to set this up (laughs) yeah i mean it was way ahead of its time right yeah, and because it seems, at least to me, that incubators are really, well, I thought they were a relatively recent phenomenon. Yeah. And in those 28 years, 28 and a half years, I guess you can point to quite a lot of successful graduates from the program. Yes. So um, we've had sort of 11 exits in the last okay. uh, t- um, 10 years or so, and they tend to be um, acquisitions by larger companies, normally the distributor of the of the product. That long time frame has allowed us to develop you know, a Swiss model of startup success. And 
also enables us to play to our strengths rather than um, trying to imitate other behaviors. Yep. So um, actually, one of the first things I did when I joined Fongit was try and look at the Swiss strengths and develop this model for Swiss startup success, as opposed to pretending that you're in Silicon Valley in America. Yep. Yep. So Switzerland tends to do high, deep tech innovation that can be patent protected, B2B in a niche. Yeah. Yep. And um, very often you, you're going to have a much higher success rate, more successes, but fewer unicorns. Yep, yep. And um, a lot of the narrative around uh, startups um, is driven by creating product for venture capitalists. But on the whole, VCs aren't actually um, tremendously present in the Swiss scene. It's, it's interesting because a lot of people focus on that. A lot of people sort of say, you know, Switzerland relative to Israel or the UK or US, whatever, per capita doesn't have that much VC money. And I suppose one way to interpret that is it's an underdeveloped ecosystem. But mm. the other way might be that it's just doesn't need it because if most of these companies can kind of bootstrap themselves and they become SMEs and, you know, um, they're not, you know, pursuing moonshots, then maybe it's just an economy and an ecosystem that doesn't require as much VC money? Well, I think there's that. And I think there's yep. also a question of maturity of the ecosystem. So, you know, what you feed a teenager is not what you're going to feed um, a school kid. And so the Swiss ecosystem now is in growth phase. And what's funny is we're seeing higher average quality and more of them, and they're going further. So now... You know, we're starting to see Swiss unicorns popping up. Yeah. But our approach is to say we want rabbits. So real, actual businesses developing interesting technologies. So the idea is you have lots of these baby rabbits. You feed them rabbit food. And some point in puberty, they start growing a horn. At which point you can start giving them unicorn uh, feed. And you're seeing those metrics going. However, if you treat every start up like a unicorn you're going to kill most of them yeah that's kind of toxic and our job at Fongit is to help develop successful startups now what does success mean in fact that's the first question i want to ask an entrepreneur yeah yeah you know, do you want to get rich or you want are you wanting to remain in control um are you the believing that you're the best person to grow this success will be different in both cases and for us, a success is having a company of 15 to, th to 30 employees doing something interesting for 20 years. Yeah. That's a contribution. It's not necessarily interesting if you're a venture capitalist, however. In fact, you might end up pulling the plug on this company that could really be viable. And you have some quite good statistics on this, I think, right? In terms of the, the average age of a Swiss founder, um, that you know the rate of growth, and, and because it like I think when you look at those statistics, it's obvious that trying to trying to turn Switzerland into Silicon Valley, or even trying to compare Switzerland with Silicon Valley, just is you know is just the wrong way, to, the wrong lens through which to look at this ecosystem. Yeah, just play to your strengths, I think, and it, maybe it took a few foreigners to come to Fongit and say, look, this is what you do well. Let's come up with a Swiss culture. Of, of startup success and um, let's work on that so but do you think do you think coming back to this story of you know this this narrative around startups right mm. so the first one you know the, the 
I'm not saying these are necessarily false narratives, right? But one of the th- one of the first things that people say is, you know, if you want to change the world, you need to work for a startup. Um, do you th- do you subscribe to that view? Yes or no? Secondly, um, people, the way to get rich is to 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 join a startup. Mm. Do you subscribe to that view? Yes or no? And then the third thing is, you know, you've got to split scale, run as fast as you can. Do you subscribe to that view, yes or no? And I think you would, you probably, I guess you're going to even turn this on its head and say, like, let's start with the objectives of the founder. But, but if, you, if you can even remember what those three questions were, how do you... Okay, do so you the third on? one was, yeah. it turns out that premature scaling is the, the biggest uh, harm to uh, startups. And there's a lovely report called the Startup Genome Report, and they reviewed 20,000 startups a few years ago, and they came up with the term premature scaling is the most common reason for startups to perform worse and I understand the dynamics at some point you're on generation three your investors like look launch it but all your costs come into marketing there in production there so you need to be damn sure before you're uh, you're going there um getting rich there's a great book called the founder's dilemma um and the fundamental question is do you want to get rich um, you know, bigger pie, smaller slice, or do you want to keep control? I ask people that if they don't want to say, I really want to get risk and that's why it's clear they want to maintain control. If you're in your 20s or 30s, you're probably going to get more money working for a large company or in banking than working in a startup yep. statistically. Um, the average age of a founder in the US is 38 years old in switzerland it's 38 years old vcs tend to prefer funding younger startups and we love the idea of um, people just finishing university but the fact is that um you know every swiss startup entrepreneur um has finished their university they don't drop out yeah um and a really great way to go about doing a startup is work in a large company, really understand the industry. And then at some point where autonomy becomes a bigger driver for you, um, you've got the seed capital. You've got enough with a few co-founders to go for one and a half years. Then your valuation is much higher. Now, you're going to be less manipulative, uh, manipulatable by VCs and extra money. Yeah. And um, it, feels, is- it feels very much the Swiss way, right? To, to, to work in the industry for a long time, become a master of the, of, of the profession, and then, and then use that knowledge to kind of make the profession better. Very different narrative than, you know, you leave college and you want to massively disrupt existing industries. Yeah, it turns out that um, in the US, the 0.1% fastest growing companies, the average age of their CEOs is 40, and the 0.01% of them, the average age is 45. So, yeah, it depends which story you want. And, yeah. um, you know, when we talk about the st- the question of do you want to get rich or keep control people say well you know uh, let's look at apple well he was kicked out and there are three founders and you know yeah. two of them microsoft also three founders you know two of them so um even the the examples where someone had it all they're not particularly helpful yeah so if one of the tough things about uh, my job is you have these outliers which are very very interesting yeah but they don't necessarily help you dealing with the the majority of uh, the people you're coaching. True, and the, and the story of successful companies is told by the the people who enjoyed that success, and they never place 
or they never attribute any of this success to luck, right? And luck yeah, or well, they say it's timing, which is luck. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so one of the worst moments I had, and I promised myself when I was going to be successful, I would not do this, is you're there and there's a successful entrepreneur. And if it's a guy, he's going to say, you know, everyone thought I was crazy. <laughs> they said, yeah, out there, <laughs> they're dragons. <laughs> but I went there. Alone. Well, there were three co-founders, but I killed two of them. <laughs> and I climbed to the top of the mountain. And there was another mountain ahead of me. <laughs> but now, here I stand before you. And I'd be sitting there in the audience going, you have to be a superhero to succeed. This was tremendously demotivating. Now, I understand why I'd say that. But no, most of your life as a startup, you're not a butterfly. You're actually yeah. a caterpillar. And... I think the, the a helpful startup narrative is, hey, look, these are the stupid things I did that didn't kill me. And nonetheless, I've had a really great time. I've learned a lot. What proportion do you think of the stories of how companies were founded and how they initially found success are either fabricated or kind of, you know, retrofitted because it sounds great? So um, I work with a professor, <laughs> professor of innovation, um, at uh, IMD called Stuart Reed, and he said the problem with his area of research is if you're a good entrepreneur, you're good at telling stories. Yeah. You will tell the best stories. So, you know, it's a story. Yeah. And 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 you know, when I'm coaching people, that is finding the most compelling narrative. There are many stories, but which is the 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 best one? And the question is, which is the most helpful to the goal of building? a thriving innovation nation, people working together and also more uh, women uh, entrepreneurs because also this macho narrative, it isn't the truth and it's not helpful. And, you know, so much of this is, you know, people say taking, a startup is taking a leap into the void. No, it isn't. You go, <laughs> you get a good coach, it's an aeroplane, they ask you where you want to fly. They give you some tips. You take off and you, you work out all the risks and you manage the hell of them out of them. You get a great team and a good advisory board. And yeah, and sometimes you're lucky. So your third question, I forget what all your... I think we covered it, which yeah? is, do you, need to do, do you need to do a startup to change the world? No, so yeah, in terms of uh, innovation types, you've got incremental innovation, 70% of uh, innovation is incremental, that's yeah. fine. Then we like to think about the breakthrough, which is an IP, you know, new science. And then, of course, you've got the disruptive, which tends to be not much technical uh, yeah. breakthrough, but it's real market... Um, driven so that might be more entrepreneurial innovation and of course the ideal is when you get uh, all of those together so yeah this yeah the swiss model tends to be it's an existing need solve better and then the question is do you, do you want to build that yourself into a sustaining company or at some point do you want to, well would a large company want to to buy that good so i'm pleased you brought us onto the subject of large companies coexisting with small companies because yeah. so you you've obviously lived this in your experience with uh, your startup and Dow Chemical and you I guess you also live this through Fongi because I, I would imagine one of the things you're doing is trying to find 
both customers and also um, innovation partners for the startups that you incubate. How easy is that to do? So in fact, that's the weakest point in Switzerland's innovation scorecard, the collaboration between large companies and, and, and small companies uh, and startups. And there's always this debate, should we invest in a startup? Should we yeah. do contract research for a startup? The best way a large company can get the most value out of a startup and also help that startup is to be their customer because yeah. the value of a of a dollar from a customer is 10 times that of an investor and that means you know the large company is not only getting something that's super fresh they're really testing it before everyone else and tailoring it to their needs yep it's phenomenal on the other hand if they want to invest well, there are people like me that know how to make an awfully good slide deck. Yep. And, and the proof is in the pudding. So my recommendation is if you're a large company and you want to innovate, we know that startups are three times more capex um, efficient in developing something than a large company. Also, startups don't have any brand risk. If they go test something... You know, it doesn't work. In fact, it's remarkable when I was acquired by Dow Chemical, we had three times the number of people. But if we were sampling an existing customer, there'd be a debate. Well, what happens if it's not perfect? You're like, well, it's still going to be better than what we shipped six months ago, right? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but we're selling this other stuff and this might hurt our brand. And as a manager, that's the last thing you want to do. So startups can get customer intimate and iterate so much quicker than a large company. So it does make a lot of sense for a large company to, particularly if you want to explore different positions in the value chain. Yeah. You can even do it on a, on a different brand powered by this or acquire a startup at the right stage and then it's basically rebranded and you scale. It, seem, it always seems like it's a very healthy coexistence because as you said, one, has, one company has... Uh, a brand, a lot of customers, a route to market, and the other one has innovation. And so it always seems like it's a very, very good symbiotic match when you can match a big company with a small company. But yeah. what you're saying is just become their customer and you steer people away from some of the other things that they do, like like investing in startups, like innovation um, centers and um, all these things that are less effective, you, you would yeah, argue. We, we haven't, uh, yeah, so the investing, it's, it's very complex it's not it, really in the dna of the companies i mean they're not yeah specialists. so the the, pro, the point with the investing is it works well if it's completely separate but if it isn't then you set it up to do those risks that you wouldn't normally look at but then you're getting analyzed using the normal part of your brain yeah. which says it can never work so you're not really de-risking it in that case and then um we haven't really seen the success that was anticipated from these um, corporate centers where they would integrate uh, startups. Um, yeah, and, uh, well, there's a big movement, isn't there, to try to learn from startups. And, and, and where do you stand on sort of entrepreneurs and, and that movement? Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but it seems to me that you're saying one, one company's good at um, exploitation, one company's good at exploration and they should work symbiotically yeah not try to copy each other or well i do think if a large company is going to know how to value um 
an innovation um, and not shoot down every new idea. They do need to nurture it internally. And you just asked an interesting question. What can large companies learn from startups? And there was a very um, smart guy from Nissan who approached us two and a half years ago. He said, we're having problems. Our innovation presentations are uh, 40 minutes. And at the end, the CEO says, well, have you asked this person if they need it? Can you? <laughs> and they've already been working on it for nine months. Yeah. So we work with them to get you know an elevator pitch and uh, an executive summary slide where they could pitch the idea to the committee of VPs in three minutes. We train them in question and answer. And then it was, do we kill it? Do we adopt it immediately? Or do we ask for a full slide deck? Full slide deck, 12 slides. Also train them to pitch Q&A. Took them three months to do. Again, half of them were adopted. Um, you know, one third maybe uh, killed and another 20% uh, just wanting um, some extra detail. But it turned out the tools that we're using in startups are highly effective to help those large companies innovate. And because you know, you've got to be aware, if you see all of your ideas that you've got in-house in the next few days and you, you kick all of them down, well, you're not going to be you know, around in the next five, 10 years. And what was fascinating from the vision of um, CEO, uh, he said, people are managing really well to a certain level, but if they want to become a VP, they need to know how to invent the future. So they need to um, run an innovation group or on a project or two for 18 months before getting that promotion. Because, yeah, you, someone in the organization has to build the future. I don't know if you, you probably have statistics on this too, but it's, it's, it seems that most innovation that takes place within a corporate comes when that corporate is prepared to, to do things outside of the body corporate. So set up a new entity or give, give the power to a group of people to go off and think differently and take risks. And so in the same way, it's, it works well when they work with startups because yeah. you know, that's inherent to the culture of a startup. It seems that you've got to try to create that culture and maybe use a separate vehicle if you want to get that kind of innovation in a corporate. Like, like does applying the business model canvas or whatever work if you apply, if you just try to apply it to the body, to to all like divisions within a within a large corporate. Yeah. So you you always going to have the innovation wars between yeah. you know, building the future and the value delivery engine, and um, yeah, all credit to the value delivery engine. They're paying the bills, and incremental innovation works fabulously. Now, if you want to do something very different, particularly changing your position in the value chain. So imagine. All of a sudden, you know, let's say you're, you're Nissan and uh, you want to explore selling cars to Uber drivers. Just want to have a think about it. Now you upset all of your fleet vehicle manufacturers, you attack yeah. all of your existing. So with this idea, just changing a little bit in the value chain, you can damage 90% of your existing business. So that would be silly. And on the other hand, if you could spin it off or if there was another um, startup that was doing it and you could help them a bit, well, you can explore that without that huge risk. So the, the other problem is if you make this external innovation center um, within the large company, 
well, these people end up being freaks. And when they go and talk to the silverback gorillas that are running the production and the core thing, they're like, yeah, but you're a freak. So they lose the ability to convince people inside. And it's one of the funny things is if you're a consultant or you're, you're an external person, people listen to you. The moment you know, you're inside the organization, you're one of you know, 50,000. So, um, do you want to change gears slightly? So, um, so, so uh, how many years have you worked at Fongy? It's been five and a half now. Five and a half years. So five and a half of the 28 and a half. And in that time, I would imagine you've had exposure to hundreds, probably thousands of Swiss fintech companies because you probably look through the applications, you're involved in the selection process, mm -hmm. then you're incubating. Um, so you said there's 60 startups. Is there an annual intake? Yeah, so each year we get about 300 people applying. Yeah. And then we'll screen those down. We'll pre-incubate about 15. So they spend three months with the, with us and a coach just seeing, you know, what do they really need? Is there a fit? Are we the best people to help them? And then we can move on to um, to the incubation which you know, typically you'd say, well, we want it to be three years, but sometimes you know, the really great companies, you want to keep sticking around because yeah. they're inspiring the other ones. And particularly for me, coaching becomes scalable where you can say, hey, you got this question, go and speak to her because she really sorted that out. <laughs> yeah. And now she becomes an expert because she's explaining it. So, and, the, and, the, and those successful companies are also happy to stick around in the program or in, at least in the, you know, in the building or... Yeah, so some of them get too big, and yeah. at some point when they're about thirty people, you know they got enough internal dynamic. And unfortunately for us, you know we've got a rent, but we do feel it's the moment for them to graduate. Um, but they, some of them ask us, um, you know, pivotal moments. For example, during an M and A, can we come back on the board of directors to help them for that? Um, yeah. So we're you know, we're there. And, you know, our mission is to, you know, help startups maximize their value, really. And is there a Swiss part to your mission or not? Yeah, so we have a few guiding principles. One of them is proximity. And what we noticed is um, if there's someone in our building, they're on the way to the photocopy machine, they'll ask me a question. I say, oh, that sounds actually like an IP question. Here are three people you could contact. Yeah. And that's basically saved them a week. And I, it's as good a coaching as you could go and meet with for half an hour. So we found that the value of proximity of entrepreneurs, talking to entrepreneurs and their teams as well. When, you, when you're in R&D and you realize that the, the head of sales is really annoying, you think it's your head of sales that's particularly annoying. When you see other startups, you'll realize that jogging with another guy from R&D, it's just the natural tension that you're going yeah. to have. And those are the kind of things that are useful um, from proximity. And then we have uh, two other guiding principles. One is excellence. Yeah. We're trying to improve the whole time. And the other one is exceptions because anyone that's going to be successful has to have a sustainable, differentiated value proposition. And we can have our rules, but on the whole... If the evidence is there, some of our best successful uh, companies will be um, different um, and will not be in the natural sweet spot. So, and are there any downsides of incubating startups? I mean, it's difficult to see them, but one one thing sometimes people say is that if you put if you put um, sometimes introverted people 
in an open plan office mm. they then maybe become less inclined to share ideas and collaborate it's kind of the only downside that i've heard but the, i don't so, know if you've thought of others or if you, if you or if you're mindful of these things and you take them into account yeah so i'm smiling because <laughs> when i joined fongi every year we'd have an event with wine and these little nibbles and ties and the politicians would come and entrepreneurs hate that yeah so the the first thing is what what kind of environment do introverted sciencey geeks like myself like and what kind of events do they like and how do we create an environment where they can thrive and be celebrated so it turns out you need a kicker table you know turns out that they do like um coffee and croissant and that's our sort of our town hall meeting yeah. and you can get the information across and getting the right kind of event um and the right mix that's a lot of how you get the the magic to happen but yeah you're going to need to have some noise cancelling headphones you need to ideally have some uh, quiet zones you need a variety of different um spaces and so we actually had to change our staffing so all of a sudden you realize well if if we want to build a community where people interact Well, I'm a physicist. I'm not great at building parties. So we started um working with people that had been trained in hotel schools or business schools. Um at the moment, the person that's running our space has uh, a background in in events and facility management and brings a whole range of different competences to the ones that we have. But again, not tailoring it to um extroverted um sales people trying to to create that environment for swiss entrepreneurs um is it competitive so you said you're getting 300 odd applications so it sounds like you're oversubscribed but is it is it becoming harder to attract the best companies you know and what is the competition is it other incubators is it is it we work how, how do you do you think in those terms or is that what well, someone once said it, you know in geneva the problem is not the 100 startups that are supported by the incubators it's actually the 20,000 companies that we can't support um yeah. and you know i literally if a company applies to fongi and they're based in or around our region or in switzerland i will try and find a way in my reply to help them and yeah. most of them won't be come to fongi people apply there may be in social entrepreneurship where well, there are other good places for them there's the inno swiss training there are other um colleagues in different fields if they're in zurich and they want to do something that it where they can equally well do that in in zurich as geneva why move why not go to f10 so it's strange we're a foundation not for profit so our job is to try and help these people and sometimes yeah the best thing to say is well go and do this uh, in oswiss workshop and come back to us i should have asked this at the very top but it's it's only swiss companies you incubate is it yeah so okay. yeah you asked uh, that was what i was saying about proximity yeah. you got to be here and be in geneva incubators, you know would ask you to move here at least for the duration of the program yeah. but then but the 
but the applicants don't have to be Swiss. What are you you are you filtering for only Swiss applicants? No, no, no. So ah, okay. mo- so yeah, most of our uh, okay. yeah, our founders are um, international, and um, yeah, it's it's but they have to be based here and live here. That's the the idea because simply we have so much more impact if they yeah. are here. And, you know, you've got limited resources and so time the, and you want to have the maximum impact, really. Got it. So there might not be Swiss. It might not be a, a Swiss company initially, but in order to really take part, you ask them to become Swiss and settle here and, and base the company here. Yeah. So 90% of Swiss startups or, or startups in Switzerland are set up within 20 kilometers of where the people live. Okay. And in fact, that's your great advantage as a founder is like, where do I want to live? Yeah. And given you're taking a big risk on your job, um, it's kind of important to be there where you have your friends and family so that when that evening is available and you can go for beers, you can. And I, I think that was one of the mistakes I made with my first startup, going from Berlin where I had my life and all the way to the middle of uh, rural France where I got a really good uh, tax break. And <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that, you yeah. know. Um, and um, you, this, you've just a question has occurred to me based on what you said, which is, is there, a, is there a problem with a Swiss geographical mobility? Are you, like, is it difficult to get Swiss people to move around? If you've got a successful startup, how easy is, is it to attract Swiss people to move from, say, Zurich to Lausanne? And then the other thing is, how difficult is it to get people from abroad to move to Switzerland? Uh, Because of cost, visas, whatever the reasons might be. So the main aim of an incubator is actually to to grow what you have and help it to thrive. Now, it turns out that, yeah, there are some people that are coming from abroad and have very good reasons for wanting to set up their startup here. Um, But... We've got a, an agreement with, uh, for example, Vo, the canton next door, which is before the company set up, it's fair game. Wherever, you know, if we can give them an offer that they really want, well, they should come and set up the company here. Once it's established, you know, you, you're going to pay money to relocate someone. They're going to lose their network because proximity is important. Um, I know when I moved from having my center at the EPFL, where my last startup was and Dow was, to Geneva, I had to rebuild half of my startup um, network. So I don't see there's much, there's got to be an extremely good reason for for moving an existing company. Um, But it's it's more a question about attracting talent. Yeah, Switzerland and Geneva is one of the most desirable places to live in the world. And compared to San Francisco, it's pretty good value for money. But the Swiss, well, actually the European German model um, of company growth tends to be it's a country of small to mid-sized uh, yeah. enterprises. So and you tend to have point, little yeah. centers and then you'll grow, you know, you might find some talent and grow another center of 30 people there, another talent of 30 people there. But on the whole, you always keep your um, headquarters in Switzerland because it makes tax sense and it's good for IP. So. Okay, I'm going to bring. I'm going to get back to the question I was going to ask you earlier, which was so. So you've been working at Fondue for five and a half years. You see at least three hundred startups a year because that's roughly how many applications you get. So you more than perhaps anybody else in this country has a finger on the on the pulse, and so. 
the question I want to ask you is, what's what's hot in the Swiss startup scene? What are the early indicators that you see of success? What are the you think are the best characteristics of, of successful startups or founders? Maybe just um, yeah, just share with us some of your insights based on all the startups that you see. Okay, so the first and, thing is, and do they mainly come out of universities? You know, <laughs> this? yeah. So that's an easy question, right? Um, the first thing is, yeah, solo founders versus teams. Solo ta- founders take three and a half times longer time, uh, more time to reach scale, and two and a half times less likely to pivot. So. You know, we know the narrative of the lonely leader on their own. It yeah. ain't true. The Again, next one debunking, is debunking part of the established <laughs> narrative, right? Yep. Yeah, and then it's always about diverse teams because you want people with, you know, a if they can get along and work together, but you've got different uh, mental models going on as well. So that's very balanced. Um, so balanced team tends to have it- about three times a more uh, user growth. And is there, is there an optimal number? No, actually, we got a really great startup. I think they had seven co-founders. That was the uh, average age was around 40 when they founded, um, called Orbiwise. And they were a spin out of, um, it was ST Microelectronics and Ericsson, a really good team. So we tend to find also early on, if it comes to pitching competitions, so um, teams with a female member will tend to win that. Um, just on the whole, we're seeing um, women are better in Q and A, which is a big part of. Uh, um, what, what do you think a, that is? On the whole, um, guys can see questions as a challenge. Yeah, and um, women, on the whole, are just you know, hey, thanks for the question and going for it. And also, it's it's an aspect of differentiation um, when you've seen five pitches of just one guy and talking about the team and how diverse they are. And then you actually see two people and they're sharing the, the, the voice and the Q and a, and you know, yep. one of them represents 50% of the purchasing public. It's kind of more credible. Um, so those are, in terms of trends, our idea at Fongit is very much bottom up. We believe it's the entrepreneur, the market and the investor that decide and we enable. So when I heard the word fintech um, via London five years ago, I looked around and, and we had five fintech, uh, seven fintech companies already at Fongy, and no one in Geneva knew that word yet. So if you know the word, it's probably too late. So you've got to do it bottom up in that approach. But the biggest advantage I have is I get to see teams every day. Do they have lunch together? How are they when they're not on show? What progress do they make? Because sometimes, and we've had to standardize this at 4G, you know, if you coach a company, you put in 100 hours and another one, you got 10. Well, you're going to expect, you know, a 10, 10x improvement uh, in the first case might not be the case. So um, that's my unfair advantage if I'm uh, angel investing is I get to see it. And I I do believe um, or I choose to believe that those companies where you have someone that um, has the positive energy but also the endurance 
and is part of a team, that's a, a really powerful mix. So you think it's less... So I, I didn't want to suggest that it was about technologies. You know, there's, there's obviously no direct causation between how great technology and great success. So I wasn't... The, the question wasn't, you know, what what's hot and leading to success, because mm. I think you're right. I think it's many other factors mm. that that are much... I'll explain much better the causation. But what, what the question was more, what is, what's hot in Switzerland right now? Is it, you know, is it in the medtech space? Is it, you know, is there anything in particular that you would highlight as being world beating and quite specific to Switzerland? So, yeah, in a word, it's deep tech. So patent protected technologies, that's our sweet spot. Um, and then, of course, yeah, Switzerland has a huge life science heritage. Yep. Um, a lot of the the financing money is going towards that. Of course, you combine that with watchmaking, you get with medtech. Um, and then ICT is growing a lot um, in terms of the amount invested there. And uh, a lot you know, can be um, said for the fact that now the ecosystem has matured and you're seeing... Um, B2B software or even B2C. And another bit is that now you have some serial entrepreneurs who are working inside angel groups like uh, SickTick yeah. to support um, the next generation. And that's really powerful when you've got people that have done it, giving back, investing, giving appropriate and actionable advice. How do those groups, because I agree with you, that those groups seem anecdotally at least to... Um, be having a much bigger impact on the ecosystem. So these the um, angel investing groups, mm. and there are th- at least three that I can think of, right? That, that have a quite big membership and you know and deploy quite a lot of capital. How do you coexist with these types of organisations? Yeah, so actually we collaborate a lot. Okay. And what I love about Switzerland is you've got just enough competition to stay world class, but on the other hand, you're exchanging best practices. With us, we want to make sure that anyone that we're allowing to work with our startups is doing this in a benign and positive way yeah and then you know how can we collaborate with them because you know we were the first at the beginning there was nothing so if someone can do something even you know as good as us or better hey let them do it and then we can there's uh, we can focus in on the on the other gaps so you know we've hosted um events with the Business Angel Schweiz, who were the first um, you know, Swiss angel group, then with SickTick, uh, with um, Investire. Um, and yeah, the, these would be good. What we normally do is they bring some of their startups, we bring some of our startups, they bring some of their angels, we bring some of the angels in our ecosystem together. And you'll find that each of these have their own culture. And yeah, maybe that will be the place where an angel will think, okay, yeah, here are a group of like-minded people that I can work with. And uh, on the other hand, you have some angels that prefer to do their own thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So um, one, one other question I want to ask you, again, from, from the time you've been working at Fongy and all the companies you've seen, which is do you, are you able to see a demonstrable impact of the work you're doing? 
So what we've noticed is if it takes a, um, a village to bring up a single child, it takes a country to bring up a successful um, startup. So <laughs> really our best startups, you'll find that they were, the idea was initiated at a pre-incubator called Genius. Then they got the venture kick. Then they may have hopped out to Mass Challenge for three months. They're founded at Fongit. They're winning the Venture.ch prize. You got the Business Angel Schweitz and uh, Siktik coming in as angels. They're in Oswiss coached. I mean, yeah. And that's classic. You're getting the best of, of all of these components. And whether you want it or not, as an incubator, your job as a coach is not being the one source of objective truth, but is actually connecting them with, um, with the best. And the funny thing for me is I think I'm a better coach in fields where I'm not an expert. So yeah. I've been a better coach in med tech because I connect yeah. with more experts in those fields and I'm doing the just plugging the, the entrepreneur in. The other important thing is to remember it's called entrepreneur. It means she does it, you know, and never try and become a consultant. Never make them dependent on you. Yeah. The three rules of coaching for me is number one, do no harm. You know, and that's very difficult if you're coming from a large company because so much of your what you're going to advise is actually toxic to startup strategy. Um, the second one is to just just enough so that they still own it, that they're independent. You want to do a, an upgrade in one specific area, the most vital one that creates the most value in a very short time, and then they can carry on running. And the third rule of coaching, I'm trying to find out. That's why I'm sticking <laughs> but he, Okay, there's so much I wanted to follow up on on that because, so first of all, do you, do you, do you coach the coaches? And do you have professional coaches or are they um, volunteers? The second question I wanted to ask you was, it's interesting you said that you think you're a better coach in fields where you're not an expert because I'll give you, I'll give you a short anecdote, which is I was briefly um, a mentor at an incubator. And I remember going to a session uh, where a startup asked for help on pricing mm. and it was, it was, um, it was a, you know, a B2B enterprise software mm. company asking for help on pricing and 14 mentors turned up to this meeting, giving it dispensing advice on B2B software pricing. And it was absurd. And at one point I asked, you know, how many people have actually ever done any B2B software price? <laughs> None of them had. So, so, um, so what are the sort of minimum quality? Like if, it, if you could be a better mentor on fields you don't know much about, what are the minimum criteria you have to meet to be a decent coach? So do you coach the coaches? Are they professional? And what are the minimum sort of characteristics you think of a, of a, of a coach? Okay. So we have developed a process um, from going from an idea all the way to a funded business plan. So you know, idea, then being able to express that idea, um, getting the value proposition, minimum viable pitch, you know, written elevator pitch, then the testing it, getting to your 12 uh, slides. We've got examples of all of those 12 slides. Um, financial templates are accepted by the market. Um, executive summary and so on. So we've got that process and all of our coaches at Fongit follow that process. Yep. They're all Inno Suisse or Platine certified coaches. So tech uh, startup uh, coaches. And, um, but they get each, 
everyone gets to use their own tools as long as they deliver this in a certain amount of calendar time and a certain number of billable hours. And um, because as a coach, if you want to stay fresh and inspired, you've got to use new stuff constantly, yep. but within that framework. And um, my director is Antonio. So he comes did quite a lot in classical music. And I'm always thinking about this balance between structure and freedom. And I think that's important with managing coaches. Um, they're good musicians. You've got to give them, there's got to be enough structure so that we can all work together with driving that startup forward to success, but enough freedom for each person to add their own uh, flavor and also adapt it to, to the startup. And then there's this other aspect um, between difference between a mentor and a coach. Yeah. So a coach is paid to deliver something in a, in a given time. So ideally 10 weeks. A mentor on the whole, it's pro bono. You were lucky because pro, uh, mentoring really should be done with at least two or three mentors in the room so that they keep themselves honest. Probably not 14. Larry. Probably not 14. But the danger is um, if you have a single uh, mentor is, oh yeah, no, you should can work on that and, and this and let me help you. And oh, actually I got my core business and yeah. off they hop and you've got your whole slide deck in pieces. <laughs> and you can't get it back together again. So in Switzerland, because we have this history of um, the coaches from the CTI and InnoSuisse and Platine, there is less um, appetite for coaching, from, uh, from, for mentoring from our high-tech startups. Um, so maybe it was a question on mentoring then, which is what do you think, so if you, so maybe put it, express it in a different way, which is if you're a startup and you're, eager to get a mentor, what would you advise a startup to look for in a mentor? The first thing would be real startup competence. Yeah. Um, I would ask, uh, or same with uh, you know, any new board member or investor, ask them for a reference and, and then phone those people up. Um, and you know, startups are not small versions of large companies. The other thing is understanding what kind of time they can commit. If it's a little, Everyone wants to give you advice, but what you ultimately want is connections to business. Yep. And then coaching where you can really go deep. Um, you know how it is with brainstorming anything. You know, there'll be a few quick wins, but you know, in an hour and a half meeting, how deep can you go? You can't really start sculpting and changing a, a bit of your business out of that meeting, particularly a startup that's been going for more than six months which is most of our startups and that depth of work and you know, appropriate actionable advice you can you need to invest the hours there and that's when coaching really can pay off because that is their job yeah so in short you're saying go for coaches over mentors and if you go for a mentor make sure that person a knows something about startups not necessarily deep domain expertise mm. and b can actually commit time consistently yeah, so I would always have one lead coach, yeah. and then yeah, get some get some mentors and try and use them for for connections. You know. Yeah. Okay. And what? Where do you stand on the whole debate about Europe? Because there's you know, there's a there's a viewpoint that Europe's massively lagging the United States and China in terms of building next generation tech companies. 
where do you set on that? Do you think? Because I know your I know your 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 viewpoint is very much Swiss centric. Mm. But do you have a view since you've worked all over Europe on how whether Europe's doing enough to create next generation digital age businesses? So I'm I'm kind of a bottom up guy. So I'm yep. always thinking, well, what can I do to improve things, and what what are the gaps, and can we do something to change them? Because um, you know, a while back, that was the narrative in Switzerland. We're not good enough. We're not good. And, and okay, maybe that belief keeps you surging forward, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what you need to be do- doing more of and how to be doing it. So I I do think if there's a mis- message for, for Europe, then play to your strengths. Stop complaining that you're not in the United States or something like that, because you're not, and you'd only be a pale imitation. So Europe in digital, well... As uh, David Galbraith said, you know, we have a strength in design. And then we also have a strength in privacy. So how can we bring those round to a more modern view of what the internet is going to be? Um, is there space for, a mod- uh, for an internet that is not um, funded purely on advertising and, and your data, but rather um, maybe having privacy at the core and, and, and payments? And then you see Switzerland... Um, becoming a good place for, for privacy and also crypto, yeah, potentially micropayments. So I don't have the answer, but what I've seen in Switzerland where we've really gone from... My exit was the only exit in two years at the EPFL in 2000, <laughs> at the end of 2009. Now it's every three months. Why? Because people kept on doing good stuff and yeah. we... we Stop trying to do B2C um, platforms that um, had required huge networks to win and focused on deep tech, um, niche B2B export orientated stuff. And, uh, and, and then all of a sudden we start winning. And by the way, every now and then a unicorn starts popping up. So I think we're moving in the right direction. Are you excited that Facebook has started Libra here in Geneva? Well, it was funny because uh, we were having our team meeting uh, a while ago. And I was saying, look, they're having privacy cons- uh, problems. So what's the gold standard in uh, pr- privacy? Well, it's crypto. So if you want to prove that you need to, you're repositioning yourself, well, that's a good one. And if you want to do privacy and crypto, then Switzerland's a good answer in Geneva. So... Yeah, that's, I think that's um, a result. But the other interesting thing is it's a Geneva entrepreneur coming back. And this is one of the strategies of... Um, Ex- explain that. So that, that's not an angle that I picked up on. So uh, it turns out David Marcus comes from Geneva. I didn't know that. Yeah, so co-founded PayPal, Facebook Messenger. And then the question is, where do you want to live? And actually, um, Ebisher from the EPFL, that's his strategy, is to find Swiss emigres ah, in, okay. in the US and say, well, look, you know, you made it big. Do you want to come back and do something interesting somewhere where there's a great quality of life and, and, and rebuild? And I think that's a very smart approach of yeah. his. That's, um, not many people have picked up on that angle, I don't think. Just wanted to finish up by asking you. So, so first of all, I wanted to say that the uh, Fongi events are excellent and we'll be tweeting out a link to the Fongi events page. We'll tweet out 
links to all of the publications that you've mentioned, all of the reports, all of the yeah. contain all the great statistics you've been mentioning. I wanted to finish by asking you what your proudest achievement is in the time you've been at Fongi. Okay. And, it, and it doesn't have to be a single company that you've coached. Although we, if you want to mention any great companies, that's cool. So can I, can I give you two? So first one was five years ago. I was speaking to the guys in Innovo, our neighbors, and we were talking about their strategy for the next five years. And um, together we had this dream, like, could our region be one of the top 30 startup ecosystems in the world? If we've done that, yeah, that would be amazing. And maybe one day we'll do it. And literally uh, six weeks ago, ago, the global startup uh, ecosystem report came out. And there we are, number 22 in the world. <laughs> and, and interestingly, it's, it's Geneva, Lausanne, Bern as a region. Yep. And in life science, we're seventh. Yeah, there was a startup genome report, which I mentioned, that had studied 20,000 uh, startups and came up with the first success criteria and and uh and some real metrics on startup success so they've always been a reference so so them coming in that was pretty pretty powerful and um it shows that yeah it is it's not about one startup it's it's about a whole region and other things i like is you know one great entrepreneur who was working for one company left that worked in another company that bankrupted, started out his own venture, which is doing quite well. Because our ecosystem is big enough and there's a need for talent, it's actually de-risked. Your venture, or if you're working a startup, that may not work, but we will want you for, uh, for another one. And I think that's um, a sign of the, the dynamic. Um, but privately, and, and this sounds really geeky, but one of the things I'm most proud about is when um, we developed a new incubation process, a new incubation agreements, which were above and beyond what we've seen from the US National Business Incubator Association or the European one. So it's just taking this profession of supporting startups to the next level and, um, and seeing Fongi go from 20 companies to 60 and, and this great dynamic uh, atmosphere around that. And that's, yeah, that's really uh, rewarding. Fantastic. Well, I would like to thank you very much for your time. And I hope that our listeners feel the way I do, which is I think you're having a profound impact on the ecosystem and you're, you know, if there was a medal that we could give you for contribution to the startup ecosystem, that would be great. So um, thank you both for being on the podcast and for everything you're doing for fostering the ecosystem here. Thanks a lot.